Okay, how many, how many people have seen the original Willy Wonka movie, Charlie and the Chocolate, or Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, right? Okay, all right, good. I needed to ask that because I was like, how good or bad will this illustration be? And so, uh, so I used to have that movie on VHS. Some of you younger people don't know what a VHS is, that's okay. They, I can't really explain it. I don't know how it works. Like it would use like tape to help you see a movie. And so basically when, when I was a kid, you couldn't just watch kids shows all the time. So you ended up watching the same VHSs over and over and over again. And so I watched Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, the original, over and over and over and over again. And so I know this movie really well. And I'm, I'm fully about to steal a joke I saw on TikTok, okay? So I saw this on TikTok. I'm, I'm stealing this joke. But there's a new Willy Wonka movie coming out in December. I don't know if you guys seen the trailer. You should go look at the t trailer. It has, you know, beautiful Timothy Chalamet as, as Wonka. And basically, what I, as I watched the trailer, I just realized, like, my Willy Wonka is pretty different <laughs> than this Willy Wonka, right? Like, this Willy Wonka, Timothy Chalamet that's coming out, I think, in theaters in December. Like, he's, he's whimsical. He's kind. He's nice. He's fun. He's cheery. He's happy. My Willy Wonka was letting kids die, okay? <laughs> that's the thing. My Willy Wonka was not playing around, okay? He was just, he had no problem letting kids die. You might be going, okay, why are you bringing up Willy Wonka? Because here's the thing. In the original film... There is a shift in the tone of the film that takes place that also kind of reminds me of the shift in the tone of Revelation that we're about to see, okay? Here, I'll just explain it. So in the original film, the, the premise of the movie, most of you saw it, but if you haven't seen it, is Willy Wonka is this kind of elusive chocolate factory, candy factory guy. No one's seen the factory. No one's seen how he makes the candy. And so he sends out these six golden tickets in six of his chocolate bars for anyone to find and to come take a tour of the chocolate factory. So these six different kids, they all get these, these golden tickets and they get into the, uh, to the chocolate factory and... The opening scenes, it's just very whimsical. Willy Wonka's singing a song. They open the, the warehouse doors, and there's like green hills and flowers and all kinds of stuff. But what you begin to realize is all of it's made out of candy. And you as a kid are like, this is incredible. Like, I want to go there. And all kinds of, Willy Wonka's singing. He picks up a flower, but it's not a flower. It's a cup. So he starts drinking it. But it's not a cup. He takes a bite out of it. It's candy. Like, everything, like, it's just this very whimsical scene. And then... There's this kid named Augustus Gloop. I'll never forget him. I'll never forget him. There's also like this chocolate pond, and here's Augustus Gloop getting down on his hands and knees, scooping up the chocolate milk or hot chocolate, whatever it was, into his mouth, and he falls into the pond, and he gets sucked up into a tube, okay? And as a kid, you're like, whoa, 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 what's going? This is starting to get a little bit dark. And then his mom, of course, is freaking out, as that's an appropriate response if your kid gets sucked up in a tube. Starts freaking out. She starts going to Wonka, saying, Wonka, you got to help me, you got to help me. And Wonka could care less. <laughs> like, he does not care at all. Like, he's just like, I don't, well, we'll figure it out. Like, maybe. Maybe we'll figure it out. He, you know, does a little whistle on to his Oompa Loompas, like, hey, help the kid out, maybe. And you as a kid, you're watching the movie and you're like, this is taking a turn, right? This is getting dark, but it gets even darker. The very next scenes are where our darkest of all, they haunt me to this day, okay? They get in this boat. And this boat goes through a tunnel. And this is some of the most horrifying scenes in all of cinema, in my opinion. They're getting in this boat. The boat's going fast. 
Willy Wonka just starts doing this kind of like spoken word poetry crescendo, like starts off quiet and is getting louder and louder. While he's getting louder and louder, the boat's going faster and faster. Remember, they're in a tunnel, and for some reason, the tunnel's full of LED TV screens all around because there's all kinds of images that just are popping on the side, just horrifying images, just like close-ups of people's faces, people screaming. I think there's like a gecko licking its eye. Like there's just a lot of weird images coming at you. I can't really remember. I've tried to black it out. And so, and then, and then they stop. And you as a kid, when you're watching that, you're, that scene, you're like, this is really dark. <laughs> like, this movie has took a turn. It went from eating candy cups to riding this boat to Hades itself. Like, what, like, what is going on? And honestly, in the book of Revelation, we're going to be in chapter 6 and 7 today, and it's a similar shift in tone. We're leaving the throne room last week where we see that God is sitting on the throne room and we are to follow the lamb and live like the lamb, this beautiful scene of worship to God. And then we get into chapter six and seven where we're gonna start to see some of these infinite, infamous images from the book of Revelation. We're gonna see today in particular the seven, the seven seals. Next week, we're gonna see the seven trumpets and both the seven seals and the seven trumpets have these just like scary images. So something really quick we have to remember is the book of Revelation has told us one of the genres that it is, and that's apocalypse or apocalyptic or revelation. It is revealing things. And in apocalyptic genre, the genre would use images and symbols to symbolize things. And a lot of times in the apocalyptic genre, it uses really extreme symbols and images and even I would say scary ones. And over the next two weeks of this series, we're gonna be, it's gonna feel like that boat ride in Wonka, okay? It is, it's just gonna feel like we're riding in that same boat with the sorts of images that are being thrown at us. And so we have to remember it's apocalypse, it's symbolism, it is teaching us real things, but not necessarily literal things about how God's gonna carry these things out. But it is speaking to God's reality and how he sits over all of history in one sense, okay? And so, so that's where we're going today. We're going to be in chapters 6 and 7 today, which cover the seals. If, if it's helpful, I learned this week, those are like kingly royal seals. So you, uh, imagine an old scroll with like wax seals with a king's signet on it. So when the seals are open, it's each one of those, okay? Not the fun aquatic animal, okay? That's not, I, I learned that this week. And so... So those are the kind of seals, and every time one of those seals opens, something happens. It's this like kind of royal decree from God's throne. So we're going to be in chapter 6 and 7. In chapter 6 and 7, there's actually kind of three major images or sets of imagery that we're going to look at and teach us things about God, okay? So the first set of imagery is the infamous four horsemen, the four horsemen, okay? The second set of imagery we're going to look at is imagery of these martyrs under the altar and throne of God. And then the third set of imagery is this picture of the multitude of the 144,000, another very famous uh, set of imagery in Revelation. So we're going to look at each one of those three images or sets of imagery, and then we're going to 
see what God is teaching us through the imagery. Remember, Revelation wants to use your imagination. It wants you to imagine these things. And like pieces of art can teach us things, show us things, declare things, so does the imagery of the book of Revelation, okay? So uh, let's read uh, the first eight verses of chapter six of the book of Revelation. The, the words will be on the screen, but we're gonna be in chapter six, verses one through eight, where we see these four horsemen, okay? I'm gonna take another quick drink and then get into it. Here's what it says. This is John speaking, essentially. He says, now I watched when the lamb opened one of the seven seals. And I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, come. And I looked and behold, a white horse. And its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I, I heard the second living creature say, Come, and out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth, so that people should slay one another, and he was given a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come, and I looked, and behold, a black horse, and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius and do not harm the oil or, and wine. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, come. And I looked and behold, a pale horse and its rider's name was death and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. Okay, let's, excuse me, let's pause there for right now. Let the imagery sit in your brain for a few minutes there. Now I kind of want to give you a, a little bit of an introduction to these various three sets of seven that we're going to see in the book of Revelation, okay? So if you don't know, the book of Revelation has three sets of seven, and these three sets of seven uh, take up a lot of the book of Revelation, okay? There are the seven seals that we just read the first four, there are the seven trumpets, and then there are the seven bowls. Now, these three sets of seven, they're seen as judgment from God to the earth, uh, partially because of the imagery behind them. Like, they have royal imagery, and partially because it's clearly judgment on human sin and evil in the world. And so, like, but we had just seen in four and five that God is sitting on the throne, and then these kind of royal images come out, like the, the seven seals, like a king seals a document to declare things, uh, the seven trumpets, kings had trumpets for all kinds of things, and I, I guess bowls. I haven't done enough research on what is royal about the bowls. But these are coming from in one sense, God's throne, and they're seen as judgment because they're coming from the throne, but they're also clearly judging human sin and evil in the world. So one thing to notice about these three sets of seven before we get into the, the imagery is they all three seem to be connected to one another and coming out of one another, okay? Here's how you see it. When the seventh seal is opened, the seven trumpets, all seven of them, come out of the seventh seal, okay? When the seventh trumpet is blown, the angels with the seven bowls of wrath come forward to pour out the bowls. So these are all connected and coming out of one another. And all three sets of seven, they all culminate at the end of time 
when God returns to judge the living and the dead. So the day of the Lord, as the Old Testament often calls it, the day when God comes back to make everything right. All three sets of seven end with a depiction of that day, okay? So because of all of that, the three sets of seven, I personally think they cover the same time span. Uh, basically, I think they cover all of history since Christ has resurrected. I think that's all three sets of seven cover the same exact time span. So the seals represent all of history uh, since Christ resurrected. The trumpets do and the bowls do as well. Different interpreters will say other things. They kind of think it's like more like a chronological, like God's judgment's going to be these seven seals, and then it's going to be these seven trumpets, and then it's going to be these seven bowls. And often, those that interpret it that way, they often also say, well, that's only happen, happening at the very, very end of history. I, I personally disagree with them because each one of the seven, three sets of seven, they all end with the final day of the Lord, with, the, with God coming and judging all of humanity, judging all of the evil in this world. So my thing is if they all end there, that means that they're probably, each, set three, each of the three sets are showing God's judgment over evil from three different perspectives and kind of elaborating on it in three different ways because we as Christians and the Bible doesn't teach that there's like three separate final judgments of God or else that's not final, right? <laughs> like so uh, we really only believe in one final judgment of God. So I think these three sets of seven, I think they're just trying to elaborate on, talk about God's judgment over evil, how he's taking care of evil, how he's sitting on his throne above evil throughout history, all of history until he returns, okay? I just want you to know this isn't just me that thinks this. It, most of the scholars that I read that are, I think, really good scholars on the book of Revelation, they also believe this as well. So I'm going to read one of those, a quote from one of those scholars. His name's Craig Keener. He's, he's a great scholar in the book of Revelation. He's got a great commentary on it uh, for the NIV application commentary series. Check it out. But here's what he says to prove that Anthony's not just making this up. So here's what he says. It is doubtful that we should read the four riders, or the four horsemen, or other judgments as a chronological map of history before the end. Rather, they are probably images of the kinds of judgment that characterize that time, so things that they saw in the first century, arranged in the sequence in which John saw them. Some regard the seals as past, a prelude to present or future judgments in the book. More likely, the seals cover the same span of time covered by the trumpets and bowls because all three sets of judgments climax in the end of the age, okay? So I just read that really to help you see uh, the first hurdle that we have to jump over when it comes to these three sets of seven. Most of us in America have grown up hearing the sort of end times theology that talks about these three sets of seven, like chronological judgment of God at the very, very end of time. And I would say good scholarship would say otherwise, would say, hey, this is really kind of covering the same time span, and it's the time span between the resurrection of Jesus and whenever Jesus returns. So, so far that's been 2,000 years. It could be another couple thousand years, who knows? And so, uh, so here's what's important to know about this imagery. It's all very much connected, the three sets of seven, they're all very much connected. They all seem to cover the same time span in history, 
And these symbols in these three sets of seven, they're showing us how God is judging and eradicating evil out of history. What is, what is he doing on his throne while evil abounds? How is he judging it? That's kind of what the, this imagery shows us, okay? Does that make sense? If it doesn't, that's okay. It's kind of complicated. And I'm not that good as a preacher. So, uh, so that just helps us as we get into those three sets of seven. Hopefully that kind of helps us understand them a little bit better. So now let's get into the actual imagery because it's the imagery that actually teaches us things about God and who he is. And so... Uh, Let's get into the imagery of the four horsemen. We just read it. Hopefully those four horsemen have been sticking in your mind. You've been thinking about it. So if you imagine what John says in his vision, you imagine these four different horsemen with horses of different colors, kind of like the Power Rangers or the Ninja Turtles. And they all have different skill sets, like the Power Rangers and the Ninja Turtles. And only their skill sets are devastation. Like every single skill set one of these different colored horses and rider with it have are are just bringing different sorts of devastation. Uh, If you look at the first horseman, he brings the conquest of a king, okay? He brings the conquest of a king. Uh, Some people think that horseman uh, is Jesus. I would just differ. I I just think it's supposed to represent conquering kings. There's a lot of reason for that. I'll send you some books. Uh, The second horseman... Uh, brings war and bloodshed. The third horseman brings famine and scarcity. This is where they're saying this and this cost a, a denarius, which is a whole day's wages. Basically saying like these things, these things that used to be cheap now cost a lot, a whole day's work. Um, the fourth horseman uh, brings death itself. So what I grew up hearing about these four horsemen is at the very end of time, usually the last seven years of the earth, at some point in that time period, there would be literal four angelic beings that just showed up, okay? That just showed up and started doing these things, okay? I read Left Behind, so I'm pretty sure only like the Christians could see them and no one else could see them. And so, I, yeah, I just, that would be kind of funny. Like you see it, you're like, I'm out of here, right? Like, and so uh, that's kind of how... Uh, It was portrayed to me growing up. But remember, the four horsemen and the imagery in Revelation, it's apocalypse. So this is a vision that John is having. These are symbols. These are almost like artistic pieces of artwork for John to see and to interpret and to realize these symbolize things, right? They They show us things that are real, but not how they literally go down, okay? You might be pushing back on that, but I just want to push back. Remember last week in chapter 5, it talked about Jesus. It described him as a lamb. Great imagery to describe Jesus, but it described him as a literal lamb. Jesus is not a literal lamb. You might be like, well, okay, that's just metaphorical. Okay, here's what it said about that literal lamb. It said that literal lamb had seven eyes and seven horns, okay? I don't think Jesus has seven eyes and seven horns, okay? I think that one of the gospel writers would have wrote that down, right? Like, I think he also, he had seven eyes. It was crazy. Like, <laughs> used them all. Two were in his hands. Like, I just think, like, that, that would have, and so, but it's trying to teach us things that are real about God and who he is. Like, his sight is perfect and his rule is perfect. Like, those kinds of things. And it's the same with the four horsemen. The four horsemen are symbols of a vision that John had that are trying to teach us things about God and how he's ruling history, okay? And so what do you guys notice? Don't answer for reals, but just answer in your head. What do you notice about those four horsemen as I just described them? Conquest of a king, war and bloodshed, famine and scarcity, 
death itself. What do you notice about those things? They are, as Tim Mackey of the Bible Project, I think even other scholars use this phrase a lot, they are a tragically day, a tragically average day in human history. Those things are a tragically average day in human history. Because of the place we all live and the time of history that we live in, we often think those sorts of things that the four horsemen bring with them are very far off. But for much of the world, those sorts of things are common realities all of the time. And they have been for the last 2,000 years. And I think they will continue to be until Jesus returns. I hope they're not, but I think they will continue to be. So if all of that is true about this four horsemen imagery, what does the four horsemen imagery teach us about God and his judgment and how he's going to eradicate evil from his creation? I think the four horsemen imagery teaches us that God does have judgment over evil and of evil, but part of the way that he's dealing with evil and judging with evil is to simply allow humans be ruled by their own idolatry and their sin. I, I don't like preaching about God's judgment, okay? It's like I don't, and any preacher that does, uh, find a new church. Like I just, uh, there, I, I think a preacher that enjoys preaching about God's judgment might not truly understand God's judgment or even truly understand God. I would, and maybe that's too strong. But, uh, but here is what's interesting and somewhat comforting to me as I read about how God's judgment is being portrayed in Revelation God's judgment seems to be letting humans be humans. The, the, the four horsemen, they're not like divine timeouts. They're not four angelic beings sent to give divine timeouts to people every time they mess up. The four horsemen represent the very things humans ourselves bring into the world and do to each other. Right? Humans bring war and conquest and bloodshed. And human sin is what's caused famine and death to even be realities. And so part of God's judgment, as Revelation is depicting it, is simply giving humans over to their idolatry. Giving humans over to their sin. Now, this isn't just like theoretical Anthony, he's read a bunch of scholars and this is how they're theorizing about the book of Revelation. Like this is a biblical idea. If you go, go read Romans 1 if you can this week. Go read Romans chapter 1 and part of the way that Paul describes how God is ruling history and working in history is by just giving humans over to their sin and the consequences that come with giving humans over to their sin. Okay, and, and so I think the four horsemen actually are showing us the sort of things that happen when humans are just freely given over to their sin, freely given to, to be human, to make those choices and the consequences that come with it. And so then you might be going, okay, what's the, what's the spiritual component here? Because it's, there seems to be this kind of spiritual component. I think the spiritual component is this, is that God is sitting on his throne, allowing this in some sense. 
He, he's allowing sinful humans to be sinful humans and the consequences that come with them being sinful humans. And this is how he as God, as king over everything, how he wants to draw out evil, how he wants to eradicate evil, how he wants to let evil run its course. He's sitting on his throne above it. So, somehow, some way. So listen, this, is, this all... Evil, the problem of evil in the world, this is, this is really mysterious. This is one of the hardest things to wrestle with as a Christian. Often, humans and Christians, this is like the biggest hurdle for them when it comes to believing in the God of the Bible, to believe that he's real. Like, how could an all-powerful God be sitting on his throne and doing nothing? I think the images of the four horsemen and the imagery of the four horsemen is, is a partial answer to that, that question. It's saying... He's, he's letting humanity be humanity. He's letting humans pursue the things that they want to pursue. These aren't, the four horsemen aren't these divine timeouts. Their, imagery, their images teaching us that God is letting collective humanity choose what they will choose and the consequences that come with it. Like it's almost like God allows humanity to choose these things and pursue these things so that we can see that the sinful human way of doing things brings blood and war and conquest and famine and death. It's like God on the throne is saying, okay, pursue what you want. And what comes with what we want to pursue, unfortunately, is conquest, war, blood, bloodshed, famine, death. I think he kind of wants us to see that and realize that. And I want to say this, be careful with how you use this imagery. Be careful with how you interpret this imagery. Sometimes people take this imagery, interpret it that way, and then every time they see something that looks like one of the four horsemen in the world, they kind of see, say like, see, God is judging those people in that specific way because they sinned in this specific way. I don't think that's what the imagery is communicating here. I think it's communicating that God is allowing sin itself in order to eradicate it, in order to uh, draw it out. He's allowing it, and that, him, God allowing sin itself is the judgment, the judgment on sin. And he, in this imagery, he, he, in one sense, he wants to comfort us by saying, hey, when those things abound, it doesn't mean I'm off my throne. I'm still, and now that's mysterious, but still, somehow God is sitting on his throne even when those things abound. When, when those bad things happen in the world, we, we, we should let, let it awaken us to the reality that we need God to take our sin away from us rather than give us over to our sin. How sad is it that when we humans are allowed to pursue what we want to pursue, what comes with it is war and conquest and famine and death. Okay, we're going to wrestle more with the, with the judgment of God through this series. There's these three sets of seven. We're going to look at it from different angles. We're going to talk about it. There's more to be said. I'm not saying everything that, that could be said, but... I, I believe that's, that's what the imagery of the horsemen starts to show us, okay? Now, we're going to move on to the imagery of the martyrs. 
the imagery of the martyrs in chapter six also has a little bit more to show us at least, at the very least, how we interact with, with God's judgment, how we interact with evil in the world, and it shows us some other things about judgment in general. So let, let's read chapter six, verses nine through 16. It says this. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number, the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? Okay, let's stop there. So what we just read, we read the fifth seal and the sixth seal being opened. The fifth seal are the martyrs, people who were killed for their faith under the altar of God, crying out to God. And then the sixth seal is one vision of the final judgment of God. It's an earthquake and it's these heavenly things and it's all this, remember it's symbolism, but it's all these very intense things that no one can escape, okay? So... Here's, I really want to hone in on and look at the imagery of the martyrs. Here's what I think the imagery of the martyrs teaches us. Teaches us that this, that for some, God's judgment brings hope. Okay, that for some, God's judgment brings hope. Which, which I know that probably sounds a little bit bizarre to say. But, but look at the martyrs in, in, in the imagery. They've been killed due to other people's sin. They've been killed for their faith in the lamb. They're under the altar, under the throne, crying out to God. And their cry is not the same kind of cry that Jesus made on the cross. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Their cry is a bit more intense. And they're saying, God, when will you avenge us? When will you judge them? When will you take out the people that took us out? They don't, the martyrs, they don't look at judgment and God's judgment the way most of us Westerners do, where we often kind of just ask, why, why is this even needed? They see God's justice as something they need, something they want, something they long for, something they hope for, and it could not come soon enough. This is, this is just something for us in, I think, our comfortable, safe lives we just, we often miss in America. I'm, I'm thankful that we miss it in, in a lot of senses. But there are lots of parts of the world where what the martyrs are saying totally makes sense. 
There's a, a Croatian theologian, his name's Miroslav Volf, and he has this book, and in the book, he's talking about Christian nonviolence, how Christians are supposed to be not a nonviolent people. And he's wrestling through why we should be nonviolent. And he, he starts speaking towards some who think Christians should be nonviolent because God doesn't really actually judge people. And he says, that's not true at all. And I'm going to read parts of this quote as he's wrestling through that idea about God and who he is to, to help show us maybe a little bit more clearly how judgment can bring hope for some. Okay, look at, look at what he says. And I broke it up. The dots are parts where the paragraphs are broken up because we just didn't have time. But here's what he says. But imagine speaking to people as I have whose cities and villages have been first plundered, then burned, and leveled to the ground, whose daughters and sisters have been raped, whose fathers and brothers have had their throats slit. It takes the quiet of a suburb for the birth of the thesis that human nonviolence is a result of a God who refuses to judge. In a scorched land, soaked in the blood of the innocent, that idea, the idea, will invariably die. If God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not make a final end of violence, that God would not be worthy of our worship. God's judgment for some is actually something they hope for, they long for. And that judgment, at the end of history, it's either meted out on Jesus at the cross or it's meted out on those that don't see what the cross is. And what it means. For some, God's judgment brings hope. That's why the martyrs cry out what they cry out. As a little sidebar, this is part of why we lament in here from time to time. If you ever notice that, we'll, every few months, we'll, we'll take an intentional time as part of our worship to lament to God. Say, where we see things going wrong in the world and say, God, why? Why is this going on? What's happening? Uh, I know that those moments of lament, I think, sometimes make some of us uncomfortable. And I would say, look, it's biblical. This is what the people of God do right here in Revelation. And so lament is even how we connect to the hope that we have a just God, a God who will bring justice one way or another. I hope it's the vast majority of that justice is through the cross. But he will be just. And there are many in the world who go, I need that justice. I need a God who is just. And we see a picture of them in the imagery of the martyrs. It gives them hope that they will one day be vindicated. Okay, so God's judgment for some brings hope. Okay, let's look at this final image that we're going to look at in here. It's the image of the, the multitude or the 144,000. It's another very famous image. That number's been used in all kinds of ways throughout the last 2,000 years. Uh, so something to note. Here's what's really interesting about the book of Revelation. A lot of times there'll be in these three sets of seven, things will be getting really intense. They'll go all the way through the first six, and then they'll stop and take what some scholars call an interlude. It's almost like John knows, or really God knew that for John, that the imagery is so overwhelming that God says, okay, let's take a break to catch our breath and let me show you what else I'm doing in history. Let me show you how else I'm ruling from my throne, okay? And so that's what the, basically the vast majority of chapter seven shows us. And so I'm gonna read verses two through four 
And then I'm going to read verses 9 through 12, okay? So verse 2 says this. This is John again. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seals of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000, sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. And then the next few verses says 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. Okay, making 144,000. Verse nine. After this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. And, and all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying, amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever, amen. Let's stop there. So we just read the, the imagery surrounding this very famous 144,000. I grew up here, and you're going to hear this a lot in this series. This is kind of cathartic and therapeutic for me. I grew up hearing uh, uh, that the 144,000 represented the exact number of Jewish people that would become Christians in the last seven years of the earth. That's what I grew up hearing about the 144,000. And throughout Christian history, people use that number in all kinds of weird ways but remember this is apocalyptic this is apocalypse this is symbolism these are symbols designed to show us some things and so here it's simple what this shows the 12 tribes represent the whole people of God the 12 the, the complete people of God the and a thousand is just supposed to be like a really big number that you can't count Okay, you go, that's not that big of a number. Well, back then, that's how that number was used, okay? We say thanks a million, they said thanks a thousand, I think. And so, <laughs> like, that, that's how that, and so the imagery there, it's not literal, but it's a symbol representing the complete, total, huge number of God's people. That's what the 144,000 shows. And I think that symbol represents everyone that is saved by God throughout history, not just the, the last few years until he returns, okay? Uh, I, I think it's everyone that God saves. That's the completeness of the number. That's why 12 is there. Here's what's amazing, though. A lot of times in the book of Revelation, I think Kyle talked about this last week, John will hear something going on, and he will hear what is going on. And then John, in the vision, will turn to see what he heard and what he sees is totally different than what he heard. And often what he sees actually gives a much more bigger, expansive vision of what he heard. So what he heard is true, but what he sees is so much more. 
And what he sees helps him, helps him define that. So he hears the complete, total number of God's people throughout time. And he turns and he sees. And what does he see? He sees a multitude. This number that really was another way that they just said uncountable number. A number beyond what you could count. It went on forever. He sees a multitude and now look. They're not just ethnically Jewish people he sees. He sees people from every tribe, every language, every nation, and it is this great multitude that probably looked even bigger than 144,000 that John sees. I'm only excited about it, guys, because that is why you and me are saved, right? I don't know if you know this, we're not Jewish. And so I get excited in the Bible and it says, guess what non-Jewish people can follow God too? and be part of his family, and be part of this great group and multitude of who he's bringing in. And so here's two things that the imagery of the 144,000 teaches us. We live at the point of, in time in history where God is in the process of saving every single person that will turn to him before he returns. And secondly, he is a God making a multi-ethnic people of God. In Revelation, the multi-ethnic people of God act as a witness to his saving power. I'm going to say it again. In Revelation, the multi-ethnic people of God act as a witness to how powerful God is and his saving power throughout the earth. When you see the multi-ethnic people of God in Revelation, you go, God is powerful. God is more than a God of just one nation or one region. He is a God over every nation and every region. So, I just want to say this. Verse 9 is the reason why leaders like me and many leaders in our church and many leaders across America care about this idea of a multi-ethnic church. We read Revelation, we read other books in the New Testament, and we go, this is part of what God does to show his power in the world. He creates a multi-ethnic family of believers. So this is why leaders like me go, hey, this is something good for us to pursue because when people see that, it's a witness to the power of God throughout the whole world. And so I know for some in the room, we go, this is uncomfortable. Why do you pursue? I pursue this because God's pursuing it. God is pursuing a multi-ethnic family, not just a Jewish family. He is pursuing a multi-ethnic family. And so I think when you see churches that are multi-ethnic, it points to this power of God and his salvation. Even just think for us in Flagstaff, how much more important should this be for us? We live next to the Navajo Nation, and the Hopi tribe, tribe that considers themselves a nation. We, unlike many in America, actually live next to other nations, other languages, even just in Arizona itself, how close we are to other nations and other languages, how much more important and how much more of an opportunity for us to live into this particular witness to God's power in the world. When we have multi-ethnic churches, it acts as a witness that points to the very power and final work of God's kingdom. It, that's what God's kingdom will look like. So sometimes 
I think it goes, well, churches just want this because all these people in our country just desire diversity all of a sudden, and they're just kind of, you know, listening to them. That, that, That might be partially true, but here's what I would contend back. The the reason anybody in our country wants diversity is because their heart longs for God's kingdom, even if they don't know it. So when when a Christian pursues those things, they're being biblical. They're, They're trying to live out part of the witness of God's people. And I think we as Christians, when we pursue actual relationships, friendships, with people of different ethnicities than us, And when we see them joining our family as the people of God, we are a picture of that final work of God and what his kingdom will look like. He's saving everybody from every religion, or every, yeah, every religion, but every nation, every language. To be clear, Jesus is the only way. I wasn't saying every, just to be clear, I'm not saying every religion saves. Only Jesus saves, only Christianity. So, misspoke there a little bit. But that's part of That's part, the multi-ethnic reality of God's kingdom, that's part of the witness to God's power in this world. So we should pursue those sorts of relationships as a witness to who God is and what he does. If somebody in history didn't pursue those relationships with our white people, we would not be saved. So I, I, I know Delphine's not here, but the Johnsons, thank you for being a picture of this. Oh, Kim, Jinhee, thank you, truly. Like when, I, when I look to you guys in worship, I'm like, this is what God's kingdom will look like. Many others in here too. Like that's what God's kingdom will look like. You guys help me to realize that Christianity is not just a white man's religion. Thank you. And if I shouldn't have pointed you out, I'm sorry. So, so what do all of these images together show us? They show us that although evil is being drawn out, And allowed to run its course, God is on the throne above all of it. And he will judge evil, and he will take care of evil, and he hears the cries of his people. But while we cry out, he is completing his work of salvation, where people from every language on earth will receive the words that the elder recites, or maybe even sings, in verses 15 through 17. Because of God's work of salvation, this is, what, this is what every language on the earth will get. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them from his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst anymore. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd and he will guide them to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Revelation wants to create worshipers. You and I were created to worship Jesus. Look at these images. Let these images turn you to Jesus for your salvation, because as we read earlier, salvation only belongs to the Lord on the throne and the Lamb. And when you, that salvation encompasses all those things that I just read from the elder reciting in verses 15 through 17. So may we, as a church, may we act as witnesses to this God and help those of Flagstaff of every language and every tribe turn to the sovereign creator of the universe.
Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for your salvation. Thank you for your work in the world. Thank you, God, even for this imagery. God, had this been tame imagery, I wonder if we would just ignore it even more. And so, God, I thank you that you use striking, intense imagery to awaken us, to see things as you see them. And so, God, I I pray for our hearts in here. I don't know how everybody's hearts is doing with what you are proclaiming in Revelation, but I pray that, that we hear what we should hear. And that even as we begin to feel things in reaction to your word, God, that we would let that turn us to you and love you more and understand you more and maybe even lament to you more, God. And so, God, we love you. We're thankful for you. Let your word be in our hearts this morning as we reflect and help us to know you more. Amen.